0: Gente, Hello listeners and welcome to Ohio Mysteries You're listening to a clip of How I'm Gonna Die by Todd and the Bad Ideas These rockers out of Columbus is our feature Ohio music artist this week So stick around to the end of the podcast Would love to tell you more about them And let you listen to that entire song But right now, let's stoke that fire campers It's time for a new Ohio mystery I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder, and with me is our researcher and storyteller, Paula Schleiss, who spent an award-winning 30-year career at the Akron Beacon Journal.
1: Hi, everybody. In the spring of 1865, the American Civil War came to an end. Thousands of prisoners of war were released. They had suffered the terror of battle, the horrors of prison camp, But now it was time to finally go home and be wrapped in the arms of loved ones they hadn't seen for months, in some cases, years. In Vicksburg, Mississippi, the government contracted for the steamship Sultana to ferry home more than 2,100 Union soldiers who had been collected from southern POW camps. More than 700 of the homebound men were from Ohio. The ship was, too. The Sultana had been built in Cincinnati and made regular trips to the Queen City from her regular route along the Mississippi River. The ship was only built for 376 passengers, but the Sultana's captain, seeing a rare business opportunity, herded the weary soldiers onto the ship. The soldiers, anxious to get moving after weeks of waiting in camps for transport, eagerly filled the overloaded decks. Most of them would never make it home. In the early morning hours of April 27, 1865, as the vessel traveled through the dark waters north of Memphis, it exploded, tearing the ship apart and scalding or drowning most of those on board. It remains the worst maritime disaster in U.S. history. And while officials will rule that the boilers were to blame, there was still post-war violence going on and alternative theories as to what took out the Sultana. The Sultana was born during the war built by the John Lithaberry Shipyard in Cincinnati in 1863. Her purpose was always commercial, a 260-foot-long steamboat made of wood with those side-mounted paddle wheels. The design was so iconic to the Mississippi River boats, but it came with great risk. Those paddle wheels were turned by steam-generated boilers that were affected by something as little as river sediment. It could cause hot spots and metal fatigue. Not a good thing for a structure made of wood and covered in flammable varnish. A year after the Sultana was christened, it was purchased by a small group of St. Louis investors. Among them, the man who became its captain, 35-year-old James Cass Mason. The Sultana and its crew of 85 began plowing the waters between St. Louis and New Orleans, primarily involved in the cotton trade. Captain Mason was originally from Virginia, but married into a prominent St. Louis family. His father-in-law was a steamboat magnate, and originally, Captain Mason was put in charge of his prize steamer, the Rowena, named for the daughter the Captain Mason had married. But during the war, when Captain Mason was at the helm, the boat was confiscated by the federal government for carrying Confederate contraband, specifically medicine and Confederate uniforms. Captain Mason and his father-in-law became estranged after that affair, especially after rumors circulated that maybe Captain Mason was a little more aligned with the union cause than his in-laws. The two men severed their business relationship. In 1865, Mason joined with two other investors in purchasing the Sultana. Captain Mason was well-known and respected. He was a bit wild and reckless, but he'd set speed records up and down the Mississippi and merchants and businessmen appreciated the fast delivery, but nobody expected the level of recklessness that was to come. The war came to an end in April of 1865 and just two weeks later President Abraham Lincoln was assassinated. Captain Mason learned of the president's death on April the 15th when he was in port in Cairo, Illinois. Knowing communication was particularly slow in the post-war South. He grabbed a bunch of newspapers and headed down the Mississippi to spread the word. The riverboat made a stop in Vicksburg, Mississippi, and there Captain Mason was presented with an extraordinary opportunity to make money. Reuben Hatch, the chief quartermaster at Vicksburg, Told Mason that thousands of Union prisoners were in a camp outside of Vicksburg waiting to go home. The U.S. government was paying $2.75 for each enlisted man and $8 per officer to any steamboat captain who would take them north. Hatch told Mason if he would give him a kickback for arranging the deal, he would make sure the Sultana got at least 1,400 prisoners in spite of his boat's limited passenger room, Mason agreed. First, the Sultana needed to finish its trip to New Orleans and drop off its existing load, which it did. It picked up 70 passengers, some livestock, and a couple hundred tons of sugar, then on April the 22nd, headed back to Vicksburg. The ship barely made it. Along the way, one of the ship's boilers started leaking, and the Sultana limped into the harbor. The mechanic looked over the boiler and told Mason he needed to cut out and replace a ruptured seam, a repair that would take a few days. But Mason knew that delay would cost him the precious load of soldiers had been promised, as they most certainly would be put on other various steamboats, for the journey north. Captain Mason convinced the mechanic to make a temporary repair, and the next day the ship was loaded with its human cargo. And not just the 1,400 prisoners that Quartermaster Hatch had promised, but 2,137 of them. Again, this was a ship built to transport fewer than 400 people. The weight of this additional load was so great, heavy wooden beams were brought on to support the sagging second-story deck. Among those boarding the Sultana were men from Ohio's 115th Volunteer Infantry, a regiment organized in the Stark County city of Massillon. They had been sent to guard railroad bridges in Tennessee from saboteurs, but 200 of them were captured by Confederates several months earlier, and they were imprisoned at the notorious Andersonville camp in Georgia. The Sultana was nearing the end of a very long journey for them. They had been exchanged for Confederate prisoners back in February, before the war was even over, and they had already been waiting more than two months for this final leg of the trip home. They squeezed on board with fellow soldiers who had been captured at the Battles of Gettysburg, Chickamauga, and other conflicts. There were also members of the 50th Ohio Infantry from Cincinnati, the 100th from Toledo, the 102nd from Mansfield, and a handful of soldiers who weren't in prison camps including 22 guards from the Columbus-based 58th Ohio Infantry, whose service had come to an end. As the Sultana traveled up the swollen Mississippi, it must have been a sight. The river was in the midst of one of the worst spring floods in history. The waters had overflowed the banks and spread out three miles wide. Where the shore used to be, The tops of trees poked through the surface of the enlarged river. In this foreboding landscape, the Sultana chugged along. On April the 26th, she stopped at Helena, Arkansas. There, Thomas Banks took a photo of the overcrowded vessel, a picture that would become infamous given what was about to happen. At 7 p.m. that night, The steamboat pulled into Memphis, Tennessee, to unload the sugar from the hold and pick up a supply of coal. Then it set out again at midnight. The ship made it about seven more miles upstream when she blew. Three of the four boilers exploded, tearing through the crowded decks and demolishing the pilot house. The smokestacks fell onto the passengers, and the wooden ship became an inferno. Hundreds of people had been blown into the air, then dropped into the icy spring water. Some were dead on impact. Some were injured. Many were in pieces. Survivors clung to frail pieces of the wreckage, but weakened by their own injuries and months of living in a prisoner's camp, many of them succumbed and went under. Hypothermia claimed more. The healthiest were able to hold on to pieces of the ship and kick themselves to shore or climb the tops of flood-covered trees and wait for rescue. A handful of boats were able to respond quickly and pick up survivors, but there were far fewer people alive than dead. The ship had burned to the waterline quickly and it sank onto a sandbar near Fogelman's Landing within 20 minutes, nothing visible, but some charred remains and her flagpole standing erect. For months after, bodies of victims were plucked from miles of shoreline, some washing up as far south as where that journey began in Vicksburg. Many were never recovered, and among those recovered Few could be identified. It was hard to get a firm number on the dead. The government's estimate eventually landed on about 1547. But a century later, researchers pouring through records put the death toll between 1700 and 1800. Of those, 791 were from Ohio. The survivors were treated in local hospitals. Memphis had been captured by Union forces near the start of the war and immediately turned into a supply and recuperation city, so fortunately they were well prepared for the hundreds of injured. The dead were interred at the Fort Pickering Cemetery in Memphis, then a year later moved to the new Memphis National Cemetery. Captain Mason was among the dead. He was in bed at the time of the explosion, having retired from his watch. Witnesses said they saw him after the blast, throwing shutters and doors to people in the water to help them stay afloat. Eventually, survivors were able to recount their experiences, many in personal journals. Arthur Jones from Stowe, Ohio wrote, what a crash, my God. My blood curdles while I write, and words are inadequate. No tongue or writer's pen can describe it. Such hissing of steam, the crash of the different decks as they came together with the tons of living freight, the falling of the massive smokestacks, the death cry of strong-hearted men caught in every conceivable manner. William Norton from Cuyahoga Falls wrote that many men were trampled by others trying to reach safety, presumably off the burning boat. But the water was just another death trap. He wrote, the river was full of men struggling with each other and grasping at everything that offered any means of support. As I arose to the surface, several men from the boat jumped on me and we all went down together.
0: First ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to remote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold.
1: Before the explosion happened, Privates Philip Horn and Joseph McKelvey, from the 102nd out of Mansfield, found a place above the boiler room where they could sleep. They huddled beneath the same blanket and drifted off to the monotonous noises of the boat dreaming of home. Private Horn later wrote, he woke up to find his body hurling through space, then thrown into the water feet first. He couldn't swim, but he managed to doggy paddle to the surface where he found a piece of wreckage. He grabbed it along with seven other men. Horn said a skiff came by and rescued them. As he was climbing into the boat, he heard his friend Joe yelling, for God's sake, help me in. That's when he realized Joe McKelvey had been hanging onto the same piece of flotsam. He didn't even recognize him. Philip asked him if he was hurt, and he said, yes, scalded from head to foot. Philip couldn't believe he himself hadn't been injured at all. Yet the man who shared his blanket was mortally burned. Joe died of his wounds the next day. The ship carried one person of prominence who survived. He was the U.S. Senator-elect of Arkansas, William Snow, and he described waking when he felt a tremor on the boat. He said he never heard the explosion, but decided to investigate that tremor anyway. Then steam started to pour into his cabin window, he opened a stateroom door to find a scene of horror: screams, fire, parts of the ship collapsed, scalded bodies running past him. He said he first considered jumping off the left side of the boat, but the sea of heads was too thick, and he feared he would kill someone by jumping. Then he tried the right, stepping over dead men to reach the side of the boat. He saw some men fastening life preservers to their wives and children and throwing them overboard. The water below looked thick with bodies as well, but flames had driven them back far enough that he saw a place to leap. He jumped, found a log to hold on to, and spent four hours in the river until he was rescued. Despite being the worst maritime accident in U.S. history, A record it still holds, by the way. The Sultana's explosion didn't even warrant front-page news coverage at first. That's because April was already one of the most significant months in U.S. history. The Civil War had ended on April 9, and there was the news of rebels still fighting in some areas. President Abraham Lincoln was assassinated on April 14. So there was that and the aftermath of a new president, Andrew Johnson, being sworn in. And just one day before the Sultana exploded on April 26th, Lincoln's assassin, John Wilkes Booth, had been killed in a gunfight. In Cincinnati, birthplace of the Sultana, the first news of her tragedy amounted to a single paragraph on page three. It was page two in Dayton, page six in Columbus. It wasn't published in Akron at all until a week after it happened. Eventually, later in May, details of the tragedy started reaching communities, and the list of casualties arrived. Of course, an investigation was launched immediately. In the end, the official cause was recorded as mismanagement of water levels in the boilers. Now, The heavy load on the ship's decks caused the ship to list from side to side. And as she did, her four interconnected boilers would shift the water unequally. When a boiler ran dry, it created a hot spot. And then when the ship listed in the opposite direction, it would send the water flowing back to the empty boiler over that hot spot, creating a flash of steam and a surge of pressure that the boilers couldn't handle. But theories that the boat was sabotaged arose and persisted, and for good reason. In the same Cleveland Daily Leader newspaper that reported the Sultana's explosion on April 29, there was a report of the schooner Ocean Herald having been set on fire by Confederate forces. This was after the war, so that sort of thing was definitely going on. In 1888, William Streeter of St. Louis claimed his former business partner, Robert Loudon, confessed during a drinking binge that he had used a coal torpedo to take the boat out. Loudon had spent the war as a Confederate saboteur operating around St. Louis and had been responsible for the burning of the steamboat roof. This idea gained support after what appeared to be a piece of artillery shell was recovered from the sunken wreck, but others thought his claims were just bravado. In 1903, another account surfaced about a Tennessee farmer who lived along the river and cut wood for passing steamboats. It was said that he was angry after a few Union gunboats filled up their bunkers but refused to pay, and so he hollowed out a log and filled it with gunpowder, leaving it on the woodpile for some random ship to pick up. But others pointed out that the Sultana burned coal, not wood, and was not likely to have visited the farmer's woodpile. In 2014, the PBS series History Detectives tried to solve a different kind of mystery. Why in the world was the Sultana allowed to take on nearly 2,200 people when it was built for less than 400? They put a big chunk of the blame squarely on the shoulders of that quartermaster Hatch, who made the kickback deal with Captain Mason. They found records showing he had a long history of corruption and incompetence, Yet had always been able to keep his job through political connections. Those same connections helped him escape any sort of justice for his role in overloading that boat. Survivors of the Sultana disaster formed a national association in 1885 and held a reunion in Faustoria, Ohio. The group moved the reunion around to different Ohio cities at first but eventually settled on Toledo as its regular base. The group remained active into the 1920s. In 1941, the last survivor died at the age of 96. In the 1980s, descendants of Sultana victims and survivors formed a new association, and it looks like they still meet every April in cities around the country. They maintain a website at TheSultanaAssociation.com. In 1999, a group called the Cincinnati Sultana Association was formed to raise funds for a marker, which was dedicated in the Bicentennial Commons Park along the city's Ohio River shore. It was part of the Tall Stacks event, a once-every-four-years gathering of steamboats that celebrate the city's river heritage. I also found memorials to the Sultana in Cuyahoga Falls Oakwood Cemetery, a marker in Mansfield's South Park listing their dead, and an obelisk in Alliance's City Cemetery for aid of their own. Interestingly, the charred wreckage of the Sultana is not under the waters of the Mississippi. The river channels have flooded and shifted so much over the past 150-plus years that the ship's remains are actually a couple of miles inland. In 1982, an archaeological expedition led by a Memphis attorney found what they believed to be the wreckage of the ship, blackened wooden deck planks and timbers, found about 32 feet under a soybean field on the Arkansas side of the Mississippi, four miles from Memphis.
0: That's it for tonight, listeners. For photos, news, clippings, and more on this and every episode, hop on over to our website, ohiomysteries.com.
1: And that brings us to tonight's featured Ohio musical artist. Todd and the Bad Ideas is an old-fashioned rock and roll band from Columbus comprised of four guys who say they're just having a ton of fun and love sharing their passion with others. The group is Todd Greer on bass and vocals, Keith Cousineau on rhythm guitar, mark brennan at drums and jay ensminger on lead guitar these guys perform a lot but we're recording this before their january schedule was released so go find them on facebook or check out their schedule on their website todd you're going to want to see them in person if you can
0: so let's have another listen to how i'm gonna die by todd and the bad ideas and we'll see you here next week for another episode of Ohio Mysteries. Yeah, what it means to be alive. What happens when we cease to be? Try to put it back Cause if store got an end Eventually